0: Well, I have outcome-based exams, so when my kids take their exams, I know exactly which outcome was asked, so I know exactly what they're doing wrong, and that test takes an hour and 20 minutes, and so I get the data that I don't want to say that I need, but I get really good data in terms of how they are doing on those outcomes in one day, but if I'm doing a conversation, or if I'm doing a flip grid, or if I'm, like you said, kind of posing to them a bit in terms of questions it doesn't feel like I can hit those outcomes in that type of efficient way. And so then it just feels like today we speak with Tyson banker, a senior high school teacher from Calgary,
1: Alberta, like many of us teachers, especially those in the senior grades, Tyson's wondering how he might be able to change his lesson structure and routine into more of a problem solving thinking type lesson without compromising timelines and content standards. In this chat we share with
2: Tyson some practical ideas that we've implemented in our classrooms that help with Tyson's real struggle. This is another math mentoring moment episode where we talk with a member of the math mold maker community, a person just like you, who is working through some problems of practice and together we brainstorm next steps and strategies to overcome them. Kyle, are you ready? Let's do it. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are two math teachers from MakeMathMoments.com who, together with you, the community of math moment makers worldwide who want to create and deliver problem-based math lessons that spark curiosity, fuel sense-making, and ignite your teacher moves. Yes, as we mentioned, we've got an awesome math moment maker in Tyson Banker today, who's from mm-hmm. Calgary, Alberta, but has actually spent a little bit of time teaching in different parts Ooh, of North America. Of so yeah, it's going to be a great conversation. He is working with secondary senior students mm-hmm. and finds himself in a common struggle that I yeah. know John and I have both found ourselves in. We have a lot of math moment makers in the community who also find themselves wondering, how do I change from a lecture based lesson and still get it all in. Yeah, the interesting thing I found after we thought about
2: the discussion we had with Tyson is as recording this after the interview, is that he came to us with his problem was like he wanted to change his assessment practices and actually when we dug a little deeper we realized there was an underlying another struggle that I think we addressed here in this episode. So stick with us so you know what that underlying struggle is and how we can overcome that, but also helps with that struggle that he originally shared with us, which is changing some of his assessment practices. So here we go. Hey there, Tyson. Thanks for joining us here on the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We are pretty excited to bring you on. We love chatting with members of the Math Moment Maker community and hearing what they're working through, just like we're working through things, being practicing educators. We're really curious to dive into what you're thinking about, worrying about, discussing with other teachers. But before we get into all of that, hey, do us a favor. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're coming from, and what's your teaching role? Perfect.
0: Thanks a lot for having me on. It's fun to be on and attack these issues together. It's just fun to do that part. It's the collaboration's kind of fun for teaching. But yeah, I've been a teacher 14 years now. I'm currently in Calgary, Alberta, teaching at Edge school. I am the math lead of my school. I teach 11th and 12th grade math. So for up here, that's 20 1 and 30 1. It's a little bit of calculus as well when they need me. I've taught my other seven years besides up here. I've taught in the US. I'm actually from Oregon originally. So (laughs) I've taught in Oregon for two years, Kentucky for three years, and Hawaii for a year. So I've quite the gambit of places that I've taught. It's been kind of fun. But yeah, in terms of that's kind of my teaching career in general, I guess you could say. And now I'm just excited just to kind of keep progressing through where I'm at now. Awesome. And I notice, I
1: see your mic is pretty sophisticated for someone coming on for a Mathematical <laughs> Moment episode. So you got to let us in on the secret here. Why such a great mic? Did you just like go all out for remote teaching or is there something else going on
0: here? <laughs> so I should probably say, yes, I went out for remote teaching, but you know, I, <laughs> I also have my little fun podcast I do on sports cards and I write and do podcasting on Sports cards for Bench Clear Media. A friend of mine just got together. We talk about card values and different things. It's numbers, so I love numbers, obviously, because of my profession. So, yeah, definitely have the mic to participate with you guys with your nice mics. <laughs> Super, yeah. It's
1: like we're all a big happy mic family here. So, awesome stuff. I wanted to uh, definitely give you an opportunity to share that. There is probably some sport fans out there, so check that out, and you'll get to see a different side of Tyson. But uh, Tyson, let's not waste any time. So, you've got a variety of locations that you've had an opportunity to teach in, that's a huge benefit that not many teachers get. I got hired by my board and I'm still with my board. So to be able to kind of see different places, get different legislation, different rules and policies, all of those things, that's definitely helpful. Let's go all the way back though. And when we ask you to share a math moment, what is the first thing that sort of pops into your mind and We'll dive into how that might influence you as a teacher today.
0: Yeah, and mine's not maybe an actual, in your guys' terms, like a math moment. It's more of like what kind of sparked me a bit was that, I don't know why, but well, I do know why. When I was 17, I just decided I wanted to teach. My grandfather was a teacher and I was really passionate about it. And I wanted to coach. I was pretty heavy into sports. I ended up playing football in college. And I told my teacher at the time, Miss Waite, who was at the end of her teaching career, she was very much older, very dry. Everybody just assumed she didn't like them. She was that kind of teacher. And I told her, hey, I'm going to be a math teacher. And I just couldn't believe it. She opened a cupboard and gave me four binders of resources and just said, you're going to love it. And I just like whoa Miss Wait has a heart like <laughs> I just couldn't believe just like they were like how she just said you're gonna love it and go for it and I just like wow and so just seeing Miss Wait kind of spark me in that way is kind of my math moment that I really enjoyed so I just <laughs> yeah awesome I was just gonna say that's like that weird
2: moment where you realize teachers are human beings right It's like you walk into class every day either in high school or elementary school. And you're like, okay, there's this person who you were a kid, you think lives there, and that's their only role in life is to like be a teacher. And then all of a sudden, you like see them outside of school, and it's kind of weird, right? And then having a moment like you had, where it's like, now I, hey, this is gonna be amazing for you. Let me like turn my teacher hat off for a moment and talk to you like a colleague. It's the same type of feeling you get when you teach alongside your own teachers, which is I actually I've never had, but I've ran into some at a conference before. And I thought that was super weird, too. So super cool. I'm wondering, like, now you've talked about this humanizing moment for an educator. How did that moment say now influence? Like, you've obviously remembered that all these years later. How does that influence
0: your teaching today? Or how did that influence your teaching when you started teaching as well? I think that was just kind of the spark that I could do it it was going to fit for me as a profession. My grandpa that was a teacher, he just said, I asked him why he was a teacher. And he just always said, it's kind of true. You got to do what you love. My grandpa had a lot of different jobs. He owned a store, different things. And he said, do what you love. And he loved teaching. And I just felt like spending time with kids, teaching kids, coaching sports, Like I just couldn't think of a better job. And so that's what kind of inspired me. And that's why I like math so much. From I do approach it a lot from a coaching perspective, a lot of techniques and just trying to see the vision and just those different things. So I think for me, my passion of math comes from sports and coaching, I would say. I love it. That's awesome.
1: And I was going to ask, like, did you try to maybe emulate your teacher that you referenced there and sort of be this maybe mysterious or quiet guy until somebody asks you, hey, I want to be a teacher. And then all of a sudden, you're their best friend. Or does that influence how you structure maybe even like the culture of your class? Or helping connect with students, like, has that influenced you? Because we just recorded another episode this morning and we were just referencing the idea that like, I remember the first few years of teaching, it's almost like I forgot there were kids in front of me because I was so concerned about the math. was so concerned about planning my lesson and making sure I covered stuff like, did that have an early influence on you or did you kind of fall into the trap I fell into, which is like, whoa, I just got to get my lesson plans done and get through this lesson.
0: No, I think in terms of what was important to me probably came actually from my mentor, Lind, at my school. He was also a track coach and coached me a little bit. And I ended up coming back to that. My high school that I went to, I ended up coming back to for my first two years. So I had that kind of colleague-to-colleague thing you're talking about. And he was kind of definitely more of the like relationship guy and building that trust guy. And I think that that's kind of where a lot of my strengths or a lot of things that I work on with my students is building that relationship and trust to... Like work with me on the concepts or the things I'm trying to get across. So I'm I think in terms of my my approach, I I'm the open door teacher. I have a remind text app. My kids text me at nine thirty, nine forty five at night sometimes for math questions, and I love it because I just see that they're engaged, that they're trying even, you know, I just screenshot me a picture and I'll have my math book on me. It's always funny. I'll get a text, like I'm out with lunch with my family or something and I'll get a I remind text from a student be like, hey, I don't get number seven. I was like, okay, well, can you tell me the page number or send me a screenshot? Because I don't have the book memorized. So <laughs> <laughs> so just different sometimes things like that. But I would say, yeah, sometimes I do. So I think for me, it's been mostly like a relationship building and the mass of kind of the driving force of the coaching for me, I believe build those relationships. Awesome stuff. Tyson, let's uh, dig a little deeper
2: here. What's the current pebble in your shoe in your classroom or your teaching or you as you're getting ready for school? What is that that thing that kind of keeps you it's like that irks you a little bit? Like what's happening in your day to day that you want to chat with us about and that and then we can you know riff on it here and maybe brainstorm some ideas?
0: Yeah. I think the biggest thing for me is just trying to navigate or improve all possible assessment strategies. Um, I feel like in my current situation with grade 11 and grade 12 math, I am mean, in Alberta, we're kind of, you know, Achilles heel is the diploma. We have a diploma exam up here for all grade 12 students. It's basically pre-calculus for those that are U.S. listeners. And it's a... Th- test that the government puts together that's 30% of their grade right now. And it could be as much as 50%. It has been 50% in the past. So it's a very stressful, it's a very nerve-wracking time, even for the teacher. When we come into that morning, get the kids donuts, try to make them happy. They take the exam. I can't be in the room for the exam. That's not allowed. So I have to go and I actually go write the exam myself and see what, okay, it might be tough on that one. Then the kids come talk to me afterwards. And I definitely... From a math teacher's perspective, I loved it in the terms of analytical. Like When I get my results, I see every question we missed and I see the things that we needed to work on conceptually, which is awesome. But I also, I think we all can agree that um, that type of test isn't the true value of the knowledge sometimes. Like I can tell you that some of my better students haven't done as well as they normally would. And some of my students that are, I don't want to say robotic, but they're really good test takers. They do really well. And so for me, it's just, I want to try to, I can't go all project based. My principal is really into project-based. I'm with him. Him and I talk all the time. And some of my PD is to try to, that's why I came with you guys and have been listening to your stuff is that I want to try to move into some more making math moments and getting some more meaningful stuff besides lecture, quiz, test, and that kind of routine that's very easy for us to fall into. So I'm just trying to broaden my assessment, but also know that I have to respect what I have at the end of the day for my kids to accomplish. Nice. I'm wondering
1: if we were to like, kind of go and dive a little deeper. So you've kind of given us... Kind of the overview, the macro view will say of like the reality, right? The reality is that they have to do this thing. We're going to, we're going to do this regardless. Um, can you bring us to more of like a micro view as to like, what is assessment and evaluation maybe look like? It sounds like you're probably tinkering with some ideas. So maybe you got a few changes over the past little while. And I guess a big question for me is what are the, maybe main concerns, like when you do go to make a change, like what that little, the red devil on your shoulder, who's sort of giving you bad advice, like what's it saying to you not to do
0: or why you don't want to do certain changes? I think the biggest thing's the time because everybody's worried because you have to have the content covered before that big exam. And so if you don't have the content covered exam, your kids are going and ill prepared. And so that's the biggest thing on my shoulder is that if I take time to outline or do a week-long project for one of my 25 outcomes, okay, now I'm against it and we're going to have to really press forward. So trying to find things that we can kind of, that can kind of weave in good in terms of time. The things I have tried, the things I really enjoy, I enjoy Flipgrid. I really like when my kids can verbalize the processes or the problems that they're working on. Flipgrid, if you're unfamiliar, is Recording app, which they record themselves. A lot of times, my kids record themselves doing a problem out and just talking through it. Everything I tried in terms of through COVID with online teaching, the validity is really hard online for assessing kids when you're sending them a quiz or sending them a paper. You show me quite a bit, which is a paperless tool for I use for formative as well. But, anyways, sorry, in terms of that, the oral stuff, I did an oral quiz one time where I had the quiz, Like I did all my kids, and it took five days. Doing an oral quiz, and so I feel like a lot of my other ideas take a lot of time. And so then, like, how can I kind of condense it so that I get? I love the oral quiz; I got what I wanted. But then I'm like, okay, I used five days for a, it was. I had to cut a twelve question quiz to four questions each. You know, so it's like I'm really sacrificing a lot of data, I guess you could say. Right,
2: and I would definitely agree that time is definitely an issue when you have to especially in grade 11 and 12, those kids are taking those graduate exams and there's a lot of stress there because we got to cover things and we got to make sure that they're prepared. You're not creating that test yourself. And it sounds like some of the approaches do take some time. And I think that is definitely an issue. I think we can come back to that for sure. I'm wondering, like, to dig a little deeper here, like you've shared some tools you've used. I'm wondering if we kind of keep going down this path of, you kind of painting us a picture is not only like what does like how do your assessments look now like are you you described a, a couple of different approaches there but i'm wondering like is it you want to stick to paper and pencil kind of standardized tests like not standardized tests but you know like standard like traditional testing it sounds like you tried a couple different things but like it's not what do you want it to look like but like what does it regularly look like
1: for you Head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar
0: now. Yeah, sure. So I think the picture I'll probably illustrate regularly, you'll kind of see while I I have this pebble in my shoe. Like, I, (laughs) it's because a lot of my thing is a lot of pencil to paper, but I, Really, I think one of my strengths is that over my years teaching, I've continually, gradually just kept increasing my formative feedback. And I think that that's been really key to my kids' success and the things they want. But I'm sure the tools that I use, the, I talked about Reminder already, and that's basically how I use it, just kind of a easy way for my kids to reach me outside the classroom. I use Shobi for a lot of my formative paperless stuff it's just less paper in and out and it's easy for me to mark on my ipad different things and what i do with a lot with that is i kind of do like monday concept quizzes so whatever we learned that last week i just put a concept quiz on there it's formative so the kids know it's kind of risk-free just to see where we're at in terms of concepts and so then they get feedback that monday so that week week that next week we can kind of touch up when you touch up as we move forward because we're kind of always moving forward we basically have to have a new Content every day to reach where we have to go in terms of content for the course. So that's kind of my day to day. I start with the warm up, kind of go through my the concept about 25, 30 minutes. Then we have a practice, or I use Desmos quite a bit for some visualization, especially for translations and transformations of graphs and stuff like that. I find that fun. They my kids would really like the marble slide. If you've never seen the marble slide games on Desmos, they're pretty fun. So different things like that. And then in terms of like my assessment, assessments I do. As a school, when I first got there, we're kind of having a lot of conversations right now. But cumulative is kind of the question. How much cumulative stuff do you want versus specific stuff? And so with the diploma at the end, it's always nice to have cumulative checks. And so currently, that's still a push. And so I have six cumulative quizzes and I throw on four objectives per quiz and those are how we obviously they have to have been taught it but it kind of mixes up so i can hit different objectives and gives them kind of a little bit of a cumulative approach to see how they're doing and then the other ones i do i used to do we had eight units i used to do eight unit exams and i didn't like that i thought it was way too much and so i cut it down to three section exams so those would be your basic kind of almost like you could say midterms kind of like a three chapter test a two chapter test another three chapter test to kind of to clump it a little bit better So the thing kind of, I just didn't like having a test every two weeks that they were worried about. So I, I kind of like spacing out a bit. So that's kind of my current setup. I don't know if that completely answers your question, but that's. Yeah. And I think too, it's like,
1: you know, it's good to hear as well. Like some of this idea of like the cumulative piece, John and I definitely promote that idea, having some things from the past, it can really help you see where maybe some of those gaps are in terms of like things that didn't stick. Or maybe you thought that they understood it. And maybe they didn't understand it as clearly as we might have thought when it was familiar. But if we go back to thinking about the, let's go into the like the lesson structure, because something that I think We've struggled with a lot early on when we were trying to make some changes and how we were teaching and delivering our lessons was this idea of assessment actually drives how I teach oftentimes. And it's a chicken versus the egg thing, right? It's like, okay, well, I could do my lessons this way and then maybe I'll assess that way. But assessment and evaluation in particular. So sort of like what we're aiming for can kind of dictate how I introduce and how I explore concepts based on the approach that I take there. So it sounds like you really doing a great job getting a sense of like, where are students, that formative assessment piece, I've heard you mention it, and this idea of like figuring out where students are and where they need to go. How about from like a lesson structure, you are teaching senior grades. And I do know, one of the challenges we hear from senior grade or senior level teachers is they look at like middle grades and they go like, I see how a problem-based lesson could fit here. But then as we get into more abstract concepts, it feels less in reach for educators. So I'm wondering if you're entering into a new concept, are you using like the model that John and I were taught and the way we taught for many years, which is sort of like, a, hey, I'm going to give you a summary of of what it is we're going to do today. I'm going to kind of show you why it works and how it works, and then students are going to go off and do that. Or have you been playing with like a problem-based approach? Like, What does that look like when you're day-to-day trying to introduce new concepts to your
0: students? Yeah, I think right now it's probably still kind of maybe the dry lecture a bit. Mostly because, and I actually, we'll see what you guys think, but the we have a workbook in Alberta that has lessons with examples that tailors right to a concept with the practice problem. So it's nice to have like a 20, 25 minutes of basically kind of working through examples together, kind of you try, I try, like that I've heard you guys talk about before. And then they have a nice basis for what they're going to be asked to do on the practice work because of COVID I've been kind of restricted on some of my group work ideas and whatnot, but I like to get kids on the whiteboard and have us kind of all check out each other's work and do those type of things. But in terms of just basic instruction and like kind of having a, like you said, a problem-based approach, I would say it's, we're a little bit more, I'm a little more tied to my workbook, which is kind of part I wanted this conversation to be as well. You're not, so not alone. Work on that.
1: Don't you worry. Yeah,
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I teach seniors as well.
2: And I think common question is that we get, and we've, Chat about here on the podcast before too is like, how do I get that kind of thinking classroom with a senior group versus say, a grade nine group or grade eight group? It's like, how do I, I got to teach these abstract concepts and ideas. How do I get them to, to do that? And then also like, how does the assessment there look? And I think it sounds like you're doing some really great stuff. Like you've talked about using the whiteboards. You talked about some Desmos activities. Like there's all lots of great things here happening in your classroom and you're kind of tied, you're saying tied to a workbook, but also like trying these other things. So, so I guess I'm wondering like, what's, I'm going to toss it back to you here. Is like, you've also mentioned time as an issue. Like I'm going to say like, Tyson, what's the real challenge here? Like what underlying, like what do you feel is the real challenge here? That's kind of like preventing you from doing what you really want to do.
0: So what I've noticed, and I think in those conversations I've had with my principal about quite a bit is that, Unfortunately, a lot of traditional ways are the most efficient. And the most efficient ways isn't how I necessarily want to teach. And so I'm really battling efficiency versus real learning, I guess. And I feel like as a teacher, like right now, and I've been teaching for 14 years. I think I've I don't want to get to that I don't want to be the teachers in that routine that I just keep doing that routine the rest of my career and calling it a day. And I feel like right now I'm in that point where My kids are really good at doing what I tell them to do, but I also want them to think for themselves and I don't want to be necessarily them going through my checklist. Okay, this is how we get through this. I kind of want that. I want them to have that critical thinking. I want them to have that next ability to work through something without being handholding, which I've gotten better at through my career of not doing that. But I think that's kind of my biggest mind-blowing question of where I'm trying to go. (laughs)
1: Hey there, math moment makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like, I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? I'm hearing a few things because I think we all, I think every teacher out there wants those same things, right? Like, just like you said, it's like, we don't want students to be reliant on us for everything. And something that it took me a long time, probably close to 10 years before I started to truly think differently about how I was approaching things was just how often I was helping students along like anytime anything got difficult anytime anything got different than what I had shown them right because I would show them I would pre-teach a lesson and then we'd do some examples together and why do we do that well I think we all want to help kids so we want to help them love math we want to help them feel confident in it so we try to kind of give them all of those things but then at the same time on the other hand, It's almost like we're also training them to not really be thinking for themselves. So when I think about that efficiency piece that you had mentioned, I wonder if thinking about like efficient at what? And I might argue, and this is my own definition from how I was teaching. I was super efficient at helping kids be successful at doing exactly what I showed them, but I wasn't very efficient at helping them become resilient problem solvers or to struggle through and something that really hit me way later was some of my what I deemed my strongest students my memorizers i think you said they were kind of robotic was kind of how you referenced how it appeared to you some of those students i thought i would have said wow these students work really hard they persevere they do all these things but if i ever changed something and put a Question that didn't look anything like what they crammed the night before out of all my notes, they were the ones who almost gave up first. Like they were the ones like storming to my desk and like slamming it down, like, this is unfair. You can't, you know, blah, blah. And this was especially with the older students, right? Like your students who are going off to college or university. And that really made me think. I didn't know what to do about it, but it made me think about like, okay, so I'm really efficient at helping them get through these tests. But then I started to maybe zoom out a little bit and think maybe that's not like maybe I've got the wrong efficiency going on here. And that got me kind of thinking about my lesson structure a little more. And we talk about Peter Lildehall a lot, but you'll see it in so much research. Just this idea of uh, Miriam Small has her open questions and good questions is another book that she's written and really, it all comes down to like, how can I ask students more questions before I take the lead and sort of teach or show them? So I've said a lot there, but I want to throw it back to you and kind of get your thought on that. like where's your headspace at when you think about the things that we're doing well versus maybe what's not so efficient by how we've been doing things for decades for. A century now.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, to kind of spin off what you said there, definitely, I think my growth teacher, I used to be the teacher. They come and say, how do you do seven? I show them how to do seven and they leave. You know, that was my first year. So now it's kind of like, how do I do seven? It's like, well, why is it asking you this? My lot of question I like to kind of pose them is what's troubling you with this question? I mean, try to get them to actually process that. So I think that's kind of the one things in terms of turning it back. It's just hard because I feel like to me, I'm trying to answer your question here, but the efficiency of like I have outcome-based exams, so when my kids take their exams, I know exactly which outcome was asked, so I know exactly what they're doing wrong. And that test Mm -hmm. takes an hour and twenty minutes, and so I get the data that I don't want to say that I need, but I get really good data in terms of how they are doing on those outcomes in one day. But if I'm doing a conversation, or if I'm doing a flip grid, or if I'm like you said, kind of posing to them a bit in terms of questions it doesn't feel like i can hit those outcomes in that type of efficient way and so then it just feels like i can't really throw the test out or i can't really throw the quiz out as much as i'd like but i just want to add some more meaningful learning opportunities that they can demonstrate their learning besides that way is really where i, I want to go
2: let me ask you this like when you say you're not confident about the outcome like what is it when you are saying those things like those other ways of capturing that information, what is it about the data you get back that says you're not confident?
0: Well maybe I misspoke like I'm confident in like when terms of like oral stuff. I wasn't confident in terms of like online quizzes or stuff like that. I'm not sure if they're working with a tutor or different things like that. But in terms of I think what I meant by not confident I'm not confident I can get enough. It's more about like I can do those and I'm confident in what I get, but it like I said, an oral quiz took a week. And I got four outcomes. That's and so a lot. Yeah, it's, it's more, yeah. So I've
2: made these switches in my senior classes, and it's different than my grade nine class. The, my lesson structure looks different. And it's because, you know, when we're teaching grade eight, grade nine, we've got a lot of resources in middle school on our websites about a lot of real world tasks, problem-based tasks that have these visual aspects to them. But then when we get into grades 11 and 12, it's become tougher because there's so many abstract ideas to like, Hey, we can't like mimic this in the real world. We got to actually like build these skills and also like solve problems with these skills. So my lesson structure, I think we're modified because I went the same way you want it to go is that you want better thinkers. And I think when we decided like, and it also kept it very narrow because we're outcome based, because we're on a tight timeline. And when we, I wanted those elements to still be there, but I wanted thinkers first. And what helped me do all of that is i still we just talked about this Kyle on the last interview we did is that we had this very big idea focus but also a narrow focus at the same time is saying that like, today i want my students to have this skill or this outcome by the end of the lesson and that's the same way i started teaching right it's like today we're going to learn about this and but the approach that we now take is reversed So instead of saying today, we're going to learn about this and I'm going to show you how to do it because it's very efficient for me to do that. And then you go off and practice. And those of you who need to practice a lot, practice a lot. And those of you who don't, don't. But when I flipped it, it's now this reverse process of like, what are the questions? What are the examples? Like I might've done like how can I structure those examples so that one might lead into the next to the next, to the next. So by the end, I think Pam Harris, Kyle calls that a problem string, right? That's like, what are these, this series of questions that are like problems to kids to work on that by the end, right? I've really done all the examples I was going to do anyway, but they were structured in a way that it was easy for the kids to kind of work through them. And then I just walked around and it helps different groups at different times but it was all done vertically like what Peter Lillard all suggests and it all done in group work so that we're talking about these ideas and like when we made that switch that kids were working through these ideas early in the lesson it gave us an opportunity at the end of a lesson to kind of consolidate and connect and go hey we're going to we're going to talk about what strategies you took here and why was that strategy better than this strategy like who who did solve that one and then by the end it's like now we could take a note if we need to and it's like almost like it's the same time frame as my efficient lesson before but it's reversed because i had thinkers first and then we consolidated after and that and that one kind of rotation switch allowed us to stay in the same time frame for a senior class allowed us to cover the same ideas. But as I said, it it put thinkers at the forefront. And it wasn't that tough of a switch. The only thing that's tough is deciding what are those, what's that
1: string of questioning that comes along. And I was going to say, it's kind of like what you're doing, Tyson, is already that, like you gave an example of when a student comes to you and says, hey, like about question seven, it used to be like, here's how you do it. And then off they go. It's almost like, how do you come up with those same questions you're asking them? Right. That student came in, you're going, well, why are they asking you that? Like, what's important about this? Where are you stuck? It's almost like, how do I take, I look at my regular lesson for day four of this unit that I'm going to be teaching. And normally I would like probably define some things. I throw up like kind of a, an explanation of like the thing we're going to do. And then we do some examples. It's almost like, okay if this is what I want them to walk away with at the end, right, like I want them to have this information some way, somehow, I wonder, how do I take that first example? And how do I ask it in a way that students could take what they've already got in their back pocket, not necessarily like a formula, like we're not saying like, just calculate something, but to get them to kind of get at the nuts and bolts of like why it's happening. And an example that is pretty abstract, but Something that I know has really shifted our thinking is when we're working with quadratics and we're factoring, like I used to just be like, Hey, it's factoring. We're going to use this thing called product and sum. And the product is this and the sum is that. And then like day two is like, well, what happens if there's a number in front of the X, the X squared and all these things. But instead now we kind of, we give them these algebra tiles and we're like, Hey, can you make a rectangle? And like kids are like making rectangles and stuff. Like they don't know why they're doing it. You're challenging them. Can you make more than one rectangle with these tiles? Oh, shoot, you can't. Or in this case, you can. Or, oh my gosh, this one's a square. And then it's sort of like from that, you're like emerging this idea of like, huh, I wonder what this looks like symbolically. And I can say it two different ways. I can like count all the pieces individually. Like here's an X squared, there's three X's and there's six or whatever you're, numbers are, or I could look at the dimensions and I can look at it from an area model perspective and say, Oh, there's like an X plus two times an X plus three. Oh my gosh, that's the same thing. And we can make some connections back to like multiplying and distribution and all of those things. So it's like, I think the hard part is now like, you've got this course, you've got what you want them to walk away from. And now it's kind of like, what's going to be like the hook And it doesn't have to be hook like cheesy, suck them in and then just give them a note later. But it's like, what's the question I can ask them that every student could throw out an estimate or a prediction or give like, even if it's just like a guess as to like, what is it that is going to come out when I do this thing? And then sort of like lead them down this path towards some mathematical idea that was created by Pythagorean or someone.
0: And I have those moments of like thought of what you're saying too. Like and I try to do those things. Like for example, I really like and my kids, they get overwhelmed because logarithms just look crazy. Like kids just get so overwhelmed with logarithms. But I like saying, What's log of a thirty? Like just give me a rough estimate. Okay, well it's between ten and hundred. Well, is it closer to ten or hundred? And they're like, Well, it's closer to ten. It's like, so then it's probably close to one, isn't it? And they're like, What? <laughs> you know It's just like getting them to kind of understand that it's actually a value and getting that kind of thought process, I think, to what you're saying about the quadratics is definitely what I'm kind of going for. I want them to think that way.
1: Yeah. And it's all about like, I think the word for me is reasoning. And that to me, like I thought I knew what that meant for a long time, but it's like I realize every day that more and more I'm realizing that when I can get students reasoning, it's like, I don't have to say a whole lot. It's like what I say is like through the form of questioning, like purposeful questioning. And it doesn't have to be like for a real world purpose. I think sometimes we get mired down by this idea of like, it's got to be something I can apply in the real world. And it's like, it really doesn't. It just has to be something that students can enter into, right? So everyone can understand what it is you're asking them. And then All about like approximation, estimating, predicting. And I think that allows everybody to enter into a problem and it gives them, I think in the long run, it also gives them sort of like a fail safe when this standardized test comes and they do rely on a calculator. They can think it through and go like, Oh, is that reasonable? Like, is that number reasonable? Well, because Sir had me reasoning throughout this entire course, this totally makes sense. And I would just say holding back on the Giving or gifting of information, not saying we don't give it to them, We're not saying we don't explicitly share that information, but it's like, if I could just hold off on it just a little bit so that everybody enters into the problem and then we sort of make sense of it afterwards. And like the word logarithm doesn't come up yet. We like name it logarithm later. So it's like, what's the question that's going to let us land in that zone? Yeah. And I find that
2: uh, just to build up what Kyle is saying here is that when you do that, what we found is when you are doing the mimicking type lesson, which we've all done is that it was, I think a year or two ago where I reflected about, you want better problem solvers. You want better thinkers. You want this reasoning that Kyle is talking about, but at what time during my lesson did I allow kids to actually do that? Right? Like we didn't create problem solvers. So kids were doing poorly on new problems, right? So you give them a problem that they had not encountered before and where do you see that on tests you didn't create right like you didn't create this test or you didn't create that resource you're like wait i can't give them that. i found that on the internet i can't give them that because that's not i didn't teach them that or i didn't show them what that looks like it's different it's not something that we've done and you know i often reflect that it's not fair right but we did say that earlier in this episode and it is because that at no time during my lesson planning did I give kids the opportunity to experience and solve problems they were not shown in advance. And when I made that flip to say, hey, we're actually going to do this every day. We're going to experience problems we don't know how to solve and we're going to work through them and solve them. And then by the end, we will, or by the end, or by the end of the next day, we'll, we'll have learned techniques on how to solve these going forward. And when you communicate that to students too, they that lightens the load on them. they say like, the frustration is gone when they don't see a problem or they see a problem that's unfamiliar. And then when they encounter problems that are unfamiliar, they are in a better position. Like Kyle said, they've got these tools now to solve these unfamiliar problems. And Hey, when they see them on a standardized test that you didn't create, that frustration might not be there anymore. Yeah. No more panic.
0: (laughs) That sounds really good. I think you have a lot to chew on in terms of, and you know we do have 90 minute periods and I think just listening to you guys talk. I think that my biggest thing is that I maybe put too much ownership on them for practice in those 90 minutes, rather than like you could kind of think stream, like maybe having like a think stream or a stream of, like you said, kind of working through those thoughts and concepts and then kind of touching up the concept and then practicing, like kind of having more, I can see that working in my class for sure.
1: Yeah. And I'm even thinking too, like for when I reflect back on it, I think of all of the I'll say just missed opportunity for myself to get the earlier I can get students truly thinking. Cause like we always say when I was doing examples, I was asking students to participate, but you get kind of the same students and you're usually throwing these like really soft, tall, soft toss sort of questions, right? Like help me out with this calculation or whatever. I'm not like having them truly reason. I'm like, imagine if let's say I'd given four or five examples, if I, could set it in such a way where I've given them enough of a runway where they could actually take some time to work through this example with a group. They might not come up with an accurate answer or they might not get it, but it's like it gives me that formative assessment piece, like you were saying, because you also mentioned how it was kind of unrealistic to do some of the things that you found you got the most information from, right? Like having conferences and sitting down with students or having them record videos it's kind of like you get that in the moment and it allows you to be a little bit more nimble to pivot or proceed or, hey, normally I would give six examples. I'm sort of like, why am I going to do example three? I'm going to throw example four at you and I want you to work with your neighbors and let's see what you come up with and where are we at and let's get a sense of where we're at. And it's almost like they've now they're getting that homework practice in throughout the lesson, like through the experience versus sort of this kind of waiting. I know I was that kid. I would sit in class and I'm like, I'm not writing down a single thing until it goes up on the board. Right. Like I would just wait. And there there's students that would wait. They're like, I don't want to have to erase it or use whiteout. So I would wait. And I just realized I'm like, oh, I actually didn't personally didn't do any thinking during that experience. So there's probably some other students there as well. So if we kind of flip that just a little bit, It's like you don't have to change the entire lesson. It's just sort of how we deliver that a little bit. So we've got a lot to chew on here. So I want to flip it back to you. You shared a takeaway. What is, I guess, your next step in terms of what you're going to be thinking about and where you see this sort of developing for yourself? How do you feel? And where do you think you're going to head to next with your experimenting here?
0: Yeah, well, I think that coming back as we kind of get out of the pandemic, I think some of my old tools will be there, so I think I'll feel better still. But I think to expand on this conversation, I think that um, not—I I was going to say this when after your last comment, but I kind of see worst case scenario in my class, like the worst case. And as teachers, we always see worst case, even though it's not happening. But like, I put up a warm-up, I do it for them, I do a lesson, I say, "Okay, practice," nobody practices, and everybody leaves, and so. <laughs> I see that as worst case, right? And I feel like with the idea of like a think streamer getting some like provoking thought through the lesson, there's even checkpoints in a lot of my lessons of like, try these examples. I think there's a lot of wiggle room to kind of push that back on them some more. And I think I need to be comfortable pushing back on them and that uncomfortable piece that's going to happen where they aren't sure. I think that as a teacher, I naturally when my kids struggle or they feel uncomfortable. I want to fix it, and I think that just this conversation's kind of helped me realize that I can kind of put my hands back and say, "All right, well, let's, what, what do you, you want to go on the whiteboard? Like, how are you feeling right now? What's troubling you?" And try to and like make those notes and ideas of how they're where they're going with what's been what, what we're teaching. So,
2: awesome! Sounds like you've got some good steps ahead of you coming into this this school year and. We're excited for you to try those out, which is also what we wanted to talk about next is we would love to have you back after you've made some of these changes, made some of these like improvements or decisions from your classroom and talk about how that's going on in your classroom. Would you open to come back on and chat
1: with us And like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Anytime. Love, love
0: the awesome. collaboration. Yeah, for sure. Awesome stuff.
1: Awesome stuff. Yeah. I would say as well, we'll throw this in the show notes for those who are listening, but a lot of the challenges and the struggles that we've all experienced, especially with our more senior students, senior classes, if you haven't had a chance to check out some of Peter Lildehall episodes, like episode 21 is an awesome episode where it just popped into my mind because you had mentioned the worst case scenario, right? Like the worst case scenario. And We've been there. Like, I know it doesn't happen every day, but I think we've all been there where you do a lesson and at the end, you're sort of like, wow, I don't know if anybody was with me at all, right? Like, we've had those days. Peter references on that episode about how, like, he literally had to leave the classroom to get students to actually, like, start working on something that he didn't already pre-teach them. So really cool episode. It's one that I reflect on a lot, but Tyson, it's fantastic to have you here with us today. Thanks for being open, being vulnerable with us in the, the Make Math Moments community. I know that many are listening and nodding their heads in agreement with some of those challenges that we all face. So thank you again for that. And yeah, we're looking forward to having you back on the show in a little ways time to see how things are going.
0: Perfect. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Awesome stuff. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Bye.
1: As always, both John and I love diving into math mentoring moment episodes because we get a chance to dive into common problems of practice. And I'm going to argue that we've probably all been there or maybe we're currently there and still working on them. So it's great to have someone come on the show just like Tyson here, be a little vulnerable with us, let us know where things working out really well. Sounds like Tyson's got an awesome thing going there and obviously has a lot. A lot of concern for his students to make sure that they have the best experience they possibly can. So, hopefully, you've learned something here. I know we have in this episode. And remember, you got to be reflecting on your end. So, how are you going to do that reflection? You're going to talk to a colleague on the phone, maybe write something down, or are you going to do something else? Maybe a sketch note. Right? We don't want to lose what we've learned here, like those footprints in the sand.
2: Yeah, you got it there, Kyle. And Another option uh, for you is uh, head on over to our private Facebook group or at Math Momakers K to 12. We've got an active community in there helping each other answer questions, pose questions on many different topics. So get on over to our Facebook group. Also, you can tag us on on any social media platform at Make Math Moments
1: and we can get back to you. Absolutely. And Academy members who are listening in, We've got a lot of active academy members in the community area. So even if, let's say, you're not deep into a course like our Transforming Your Textbook into a Curiosity Machine course, you might be taking a little bit of time to maybe dive into something else. Be sure to get into that community. Share what you're up to in your classroom. What is your pebble in your shoe? And share it with the community members. Lots of active participants in there. And also, remember, Hit that subscribe button. I think John's made the switch over to Spotify for his podcasting. You might be on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or some other platform. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. And remember, many of these are now video interviews on YouTube. Hit that subscribe button, ring that bell, and you'll be notified anytime we release a new YouTube video. Show notes and links to
2: resources discussed in this episode and complete transcripts from our episode here is hosted over at makemathmoments.com. Well, my math moment maker friends, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us and high five for you.